Here Be Dragons is a podcast of Christ City Church in Vancouver, BC, Canada. Here, we'll aim to talk about what it means to faithfully follow Jesus in our post-Christian context, all with the aim of making missional disciples for the sake of the neighborhood. If you'd like to know more about Christ City Church and get connected to a neighborhood church, you can email info at christcitychurch.ca. Well, I'm joined today by Ian Proven, a longtime regent professor, retired this past December, author of numerous books, all fantastic, but including, uh, and specifically the one we're talking about today, coming out, Lord willing, uh, this June, which is Cuckoos in Our Nest, Truth and Lies About Being Human. Ian, welcome here. Thank you. It's always a great pleasure. So just before we get into the book, I just want to situate this for, for our listeners and for myself. You retire from teaching. I have done that for, you know, decades. Uh, and so most people, when they retire, you know, you mentioned in your book, Gin and Tonics, and you think about retirement being a season of, of gin and tonics and, and, you know, laying back and, and enjoying sort of the fruit of your labor. And yet you, you haven't done that. Uh, tell us a bit about what you've been up to, including this book and sort of what this past season has even looked like for you. Yeah, this is an interesting question. I, I, I don't think I've ever imagined just sitting down in an armchair. Um, I can't imagine it, to, mm. to be honest. Um, and so when it became clear to me that the time had probably come after a long stint at Regent College, 25 years, which is a long time in any job, and change is a good thing, to be honest. Um, so when I came to the conclusion that that time was coming to an end, my first question was not where are the golf courses, but what should I be doing next? And uh, we took sabbatical leave at the end of 2022. And with the benefit of distance, physical distance, and other kinds of distance from Vancouver, um, my, I set myself the task of trying to discern what the calling was for this next period. Uh, what I should be doing and what I shouldn't be doing, which these two things being deeply related to each other. And uh, I came up with this, this idea of a theological consultancy, essentially, uh, specifically focused on the issue of humanness, because I think this is the great question of our time and in the culture, and it has become, therefore, the great issue for the church. And I'm not convinced that the church at large is necessarily handling the question optimally. And, you know, I've, I've spent a lot of time thinking and writing about it, so I thought, well, that, that looks like the path ahead then. And the book is related to that. So the, the consultancy is called the Cuckoo's Consultancy, and the book is obviously cuckoo-related. And that's one of the main things that I've, I've committed myself to do. Yeah. Yeah. Before we get into the cuckoos, you begin the book by describing our moment sort of on par with, with the Arian controversy facing the early church mm. and then the Protestant Reformation. In your mind and to your understanding, like what, what is so pressing, what is so decisive about the moment that we're in right mm. now surrounding that question, what does it mean to be a human being? Yes, I mean, there are particular moments. I mean, heresy is also is always with us right. in some form. And I've often made the serious joke that in many ways we're all recovering heresies mm -hmm. all the time. Mm -hmm. We're hopefully always growing more deeply into the truth and leaving error behind. 
But there have been times in the history of the church where there's been a real crisis. There have been two paths opened up before the church, one of which leads to the end of the church if followed fully, and the other of which leads to revival mm. in the church. So the controversy over um, particularly the who Jesus is, which is the, the Arian one, and then the, the big question of the Protestant Reformation, how is it that people can be saved? These were extremely important moments, mm -hmm. and it didn't appear, in both cases, it, it appeared for some of the time that the, the side of right and truth would be lost because they were minority interests, if I can put it mm. that way. I think, and I'm interested to find other people saying this kind of thing as well, I think the question of humanness is of that order because it's become the focal point of the whole business of the truth of the gospel. and um, It has ramifications that extend across the whole range of Christian faith. Yeah really. Yeah. And one of the most baffling things to me is how it is that people can possibly say that some of these issues to do with sexual identity, for example, ought to be regarded as secondary issues in the church. Mm. And I, I sit back in my chair, which I'm in a chair now, <laughs> and I say, that can't possibly be true. Mm. It can't be a secondary matter, mm. what you think of your body. Mm. Uh, this is just surely nonsense. Mm. Uh, so all of that is bound up with, yeah. with where I've decided to go. Yeah. So, so I mean, I guess before we get into sort of the, the biblical framework that you lay out and you begin your book by, by laying out, how do we get to a point where we can say something to the effect of this is a secondary issue or this is a tertiary issue or this is an issue where we can agree to disagree on it? How do we get to that point uh, as a church, um, as a church maybe more, more particularly? Well, I, I think there is always going to be some room for debate on that because there are some things that are very important to particular Christian groups right. that are not viewed uh, similarly in other respects. But they tend to be, those kinds of issues, I think, are not core issues of the faith. For example, if you believe in baptism but you disagree about the mode of baptism, mm -hmm. that's not rejecting something fundamental in the Christian faith. If you reject the divinity of Christ, or you think that you can be saved by indulgences, right. or you believe that what you do with your human personhood is a matter of purely autonomous free will, these are all things that fundamentally contradict the, the core narrative of Scripture. Uh, and I don't see how you anyone can really reasonably dispute that these are, are core issues. So, of course, uh, we do have to have sensible conversations about these things, but I, I don't think, to me, this, this particular one is, as it were, not rocket science. What it means to be a person is surely right at the heart of right. the Christian understanding of the world. And, and that's why I appreciate the beginning of your book so much. And you begin by unpacking the biblical narrative through the lens of asking the question, what is a human being? And I, and I think for me as, as a pastor, uh, obviously what I'm dealing with is, is biblical illiteracy and, and trying to uh, you know, share and indoctrinate people into the story of Scripture and to envelop them in that story. And so I, I love that you did not assume that story, 
but said, you asked this question and um, and particularly unpack that story as it applies to each point. So I really appreciated that. I, I want us to to just unpack this metaphor, this cuckoo metaphor, which is at the heart of your book, mm. the heart of your consultancy. Uh, for those of us who are not ornithologists, can you just give us like the brief, uh, what is a cuckoo? Why have you chosen this metaphor? And then I want to ask you a bit about why you chose this metaphor over and above or against other metaphors that you could potentially have chosen. So what, what is this metaphor? Yes, you know the old thing about if you have to explain a joke, you probably shouldn't <laughs> tell it. Um, I feel a bit like that with cuckoos, but having thought about it further, even at the beginning when my wife and I came up with this over the lunch table, and it's not even clear how we came to it, but there it was, and we both thought, that's a really good uh, metaphor. Mm. It will need some explaining, but it's probably worth the trouble. So, yeah. uh, and I think it's true. It is worth the trouble. I agree. So the reason that people don't know much about it is, is not perhaps just because they don't know much about birds in general, but because we are talking about the European cuckoo specifically. I don't believe all cuckoos necessarily behave in, in the way that's important here. But the European cuckoo is an interesting bird. It migrates from Africa uh, each year. It doesn't build its own nest. It smuggles its eggs into other birds' nests and leaves the single egg, um, which apparently is impossible for the host bird to, to identify as foreign, leaves the egg to hatch. The cuckoo comes out and basically assassinates all the other birds, oh. either kicking the eggs or the birds, the chicks, out of the nest, takes over, um, is the sole recipient of all the care of the parents and grows to enormous size and still the, the, the host birds don't notice, really, uh, and, and they go on until the cuckoo actually fills the nest. And there are these amazing photographs that people can find on the internet of this cuckoo in a tiny nest uh, just utterly having taken over. And the reason why this is a helpful metaphor for us is because bad ideas about humanness, I think, are like cuckoos in the nest. Uh, not necessarily easy to spot, easily mistaken for a member of the family, actually destructive of the nest and the other inhabitants of the nest. And I think thinking of alien ideas, wrong ideas about humanness as cuckoos in our nest is actually very powerful. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So it's worth explaining. Yeah. No, and I really appreciate it. Why did you choose that metaphor um, instead of uh, the metaphor of sickness or disease or, or, or something like that, that for example? Is it, is it, is it the insidious kind of you kind of sneaky, you know, assassin-like nature of the cuckoos that kind of does it for you? Or, or is it something that's particularly about that, that that helps? You know, isn't a very interesting question, the why question? Mm. Um, writers and artists and poets and songwriters get asked this kind of question all the time. It's amazing how often the answer is, I couldn't really tell you, it just came to me. Yeah, yeah. And we feel that way my wife and I, we can't really remember the moment where somebody said cuckoo. Mm. But what we do remember is thinking about it immediately and realizing it was a great metaphor that nobody else that I was aware of had used in this context. 
And so the, the shock value, in a sense, is, is very worthwhile. Mm-hmm. Um, or even just the bafflement. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, in, in Britain, of course, I don't know how it is uh, in Canada, but there's also the, the, the temptation here to mock because it's, going cuckoo is, is a way of talking about going mm-hmm. mad. So we, we, we thought about all of that, but um, we decided to go with it anyway. But honestly, why exactly we hit yeah. on that? We just, at the end of the day, we had a strong feeling that this was a good way to go. Yeah. Um, so I, I don't think I can rationalize it more than that. No, no. I mean, I, I think it does uh, exactly capture what you want to accomplish in the book. And so whatever the reason is. I, I want to start maybe before you get actually into the the biblical framework uh, and unpacking the biblical story. You actually ask a, a more foundational question, which is one of epistemology. Now, this is the moment where I say I know what that means, but for those who don't know what that means, what are we talking about when we're talking about epistemology? Um, so these big words that sometimes we, again, we make fun of, they're mm-hmm. really just shorthand to save you speaking a paragraph. Perfect. And epistemology is like that. So epistemology is really thinking about how we know stuff, basically. Um, It may seem at first to people who haven't reflected on this that, well, we just know stuff. It's a simple matter. But it's a far from simple matter, actually, because there are many competing authorities that wish to tell us what knowledge is and how to acquire it. And, of course, in Christian faith, we have and ought to have a very distinctive set of ideas mm-hmm. about this. They overlap with other people's ideas, but they're not exhausted by other people's ideas. And I think it's, it's very important for Christian people to understand this. And I think one of the reasons we're having difficulty dealing with the culture at the moment is because we don't understand it. And we get too easily intimidated by other people's claims to know stuff. Mm. They seem so secure and certain and dogmatic. Mm -hmm. And yet, when you examine the foundations of those claims to knowledge, you discover that they are actually quite weak. I, I wonder if, I mean, when I was reading the book, I was thinking about COVID and during COVID, it seemed to be to me at least, that, that experts were on trial. And so there was all these appeals to authority and appeals to experts. Uh, and, you know, well, you'd find one that, you know, obviously you conveniently sided with your position. And, and I wonder if, do you think uh, like uh, some shade or some, some doubt has been cast on like the, the modern idea of expertise and how we think about experts? And, and do you think they have less or more authority uh, than, than they used to? Well, I think it depends to whom you talk, actually. Um, whether you think people have lost credibility or not. I do think among large segments of the population, there's more doubt Mm -hmm. about some of these traditional authorities. I'm not sure that's a good thing, to be honest. It seems to me that, and you know from having read the book, that I'm a great believer in science Mm -hmm. within the domain that science can speak about and Mm -hmm. the foolishness of being anti-scientific, for example. The problem is when people are not really analyzing what's going on, going on, it's easy to slip from science into ideology, science into agenda, um, simplifying 
oversimplifying the science in order to get your own way. Mm -hmm. And so the business of follow the science is an idea that I both want to affirm and also to raise questions about. Mm. But that requires nuance, and we're not good at nuance. We prefer to know whether we have goodies or baddies, yeah. right? Our I prefer that personally. I, I personally prefer that. that yeah. Well, it's, it's, we, we've been brought up <laughs> yeah. to, to do that. Goodies and baddies are very satisfying. Yeah. You know where you are, mm -hmm. right? Um, but the trouble mm. is, in many ways, you don't know where you are because you haven't really thought about it. Mm. And so um, I think um, thinking is just really important. And knowing whom to trust under which circumstances mm. and why mm. is the thing. Mm. So yes, I think there has been a loss of authority. I don't think it's necessarily a good thing. Yeah, uh, and I think that it's. Uh, you wonder whether people thought about the consequences of it when they, when they began to behave in the way they did, mm. mixing up ideology with science and trying to sell the whole thing as one package. If we can stay with science for, for just a minute here, one of the themes that you impact throughout the book actually is, is, is the move from is to ought. Um, you know, observing something and seeing it for what it is and then making a, an ought claim, like, and therefore we should do this. This is how we should then live. Can you maybe just unpack that for us, uh, like how that movement happens and, and the legitimacy or Ill illegitimacy of that kind of movement from observing something to then making a moral claim about what we should do? So I think we could probably safely say that in the world of um, certainly many religions or traditional societies even, that authority in terms of how to live, what we ought to do, what mm -hmm. we ought to think and how we ought to live, has tended to be grounded in the transcendent, mm -hmm. broadly speaking, or at least in the gods where transcendent might not be the best word because the gods are often conceived of as being part of the system, traditional religions. But anyway, um, how if you ask the question, how did people back in the day decide on right and wrong and so on, it would be a mixture of things like revelation, custom, tradition, with the loss of confidence in religion in the European Enlightenment in particular, people had to find different ways of speaking about this business of ought. And they hit on the idea, and I'm simplifying obviously, but basically they hit on the idea of trying to derive ought from nature, hmm. the way things can be described to be. And they seem to have believed that you could indeed, many of them seem to have believed you could indeed move from description of reality generated by scientific endeavor, the is, to statements of ought. And this was convenient because then you could do without religion entirely, which for other reasons they wanted to do. Mm -hmm. Not all of them bad reasons, but that's a whole other podcast. Um, and so we get this assumption, really, that somehow you can move from is to ought. But in fact, I just think that is plainly wrong. Right. Um, and I give some examples in the book to, mm -hmm. to illustrate the way in which it is wrong. And one of the ones I choose is cannibalism. Mm. Suppose you find <laughs> that cannibalism is natural to bunches of people. Mm -hmm. Does that make it right? Mm -hmm. 
But I think many people would hesitate before making that statement. Mm -hmm. So um, this has been one of the, the features, I think, of our um, post-Christendom societies for a while now, mm -hmm. several hundred years. But the fact it's long-lived doesn't make it sensible. Mm -hmm. Staying with epistemology before moving on, I, I'm thinking in my mind of the the high school student or the or the university grad right now, who who is maybe a bit disorientated right now and who is wondering who they should invite into their circle of trusted friends in this moment. How would you encourage them? Uh, what are some ways, maybe even practically, you would you would say here's how you go about you know creating for yourself, maybe not creating for somebody that's the wrong language, uh, but establishing. Uh, this, you know, historically orthodox circle of trusted friends. How would you encourage that young person right now? Well, I mean, I think the, um, beginning at the beginning, so this circle of trust language, some of your listeners will recognize it who have uh, wasted time, as I have done, watching too many movies in our lives. So this is from Meet the Parents, of course, yeah. where the whole question of who is inside the circle of trust becomes a matter of fun. I did the, appreciate all the, the film references throughout the book. That was fantastic. <laughs> well, maybe it wasn't wasted. Though. No, it wasn't. It wasn't. Um, so the question of epistemology mm -hmm. comes down very largely to the question, whom do I trust? Mm. Because the amount of truth we can generate just individually through our senses is actually reasonably limited. And so we already wake up to the world finding we have trusted some people like parents and so on for a long time. That's a very wise thing to do. Although we weren't being wise, we were just being kids. Um, but it's still a wise thing to do. Trust your elders, uh, people who have been around more. So the question of trust lies right at the heart of knowledge. And the question for the young person, the high school person, therefore, is, well, whom should I trust? And I, I think that that ought to begin with the question of church community, mm -hmm. the tradition of the church, the scriptures, the story of the, of, of the Bible. And it ought to move out from there to other people who likewise believe and are striving in that direction. It shouldn't exclude legitimate scientific inquiry, mm -hmm. for example, but it probably ought to exclude um, the influence of countless strangers on the internet and social yeah. media, uh, wh whom you increasingly cannot even verify to be real people, quite apart from anything else, mm -hmm. and certainly not to be telling you the truth about anything. Um, and I think one of the most problematic things about our culture and the reason that young people, teenagers, feel so at sea is because they are being overwhelmed by all of these stimuli and, and claims to truth, which um, really there's no reason they should accept, but nonetheless it's an intimidating volume mm -hmm. that seems to require attention. Mm -hmm. Actually, it doesn't. If you were to ignore all of it, you wouldn't be any worse off, and you'd probably be a lot better off. But that's a big step for teenagers. Yeah who can't apparently leave phones down for more than two minutes at a time, some of them. And I would say that clearly comes under the heading of addiction, would you not? Oh. If somebody cannot do something for more than two, two minutes. But then that might well be another podcast as well. Well, so I, I want to, without leaving that point, I was recently at a talk you were, you were giving uh, to a group of pastors, and you mentioned, uh, you made a parallel between this ancient stream of forgetfulness, 
Do you remember this? Yes. And 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 how that might uh, correspond with us today without, you know, extracting all the gold that you have to offer, Ian. Can you maybe just unpack that parallel? Because for me, listening in the crowd at the time, I remember looking around at the group of pastors who I was with who were like, oh, you know, recognizing our own, you know, culpability yeah. in that, but also, you know, our own church's uh, struggle with this. So do you mind unpacking that, that parallel for us? Sure. Well, I mean, the, the key positive point before we get to forgetfulness is the, the evident biblical emphasis on the importance of remembering. Yeah. So how do you know who you are biblically? Well, remembering is a huge part of that. And you think of all the structures that are put in place in a book like Deuteronomy, uh, focused on enabling people to remember, mm. and in fact inducting children into the remembering, even though they weren't there. But they're, to know who they are, they have to remember that they're part of this group. Mm -hmm. The descendants of Abraham and Sarah, they're not Babylonians and they're not Egyptians. Mm -hmm. Over against that, in the talk you're referring to, I set the, <clears throat> the ancient Greek uh, fable, really, about the waters of Lethe, um, which flow through Hades, I think. And to drink from that water is, is to make you forget. And so I was really trying to, to ask the question, what are our modern, postmodern waters of Lethe that mm -hmm. make us forget? And as you remember, high on my hit list there were precisely um, all of these, uh, all of this cultural screaming, as I call mm -hmm. it, that comes at us through a variety of things, uh, Netflix and social media and uh, all of that, that mm -hmm. are just designed intentionally to distract us and to get us to buy stuff. And the people who invented them, like the Facebook founders, are very explicit that it was, in fact, their design to um, occupy as much of our attention for as long as possible mm -hmm. so they could sell us stuff, essentially. Mm -hmm. Um, now, I'm not sure people know that, and it has to be brought up for examination because it is the truth of the matter. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so just moving on from epistemology, how we know what we know, uh, the, the second part of the book, which uh, you know, takes up a big chunk of it, is, is on fundamentals, is you know, the biblical story and what it has to say about who we are as human beings. And you say a few things. You say human being is a creature of the one living God, one of the many of his creatures, it turns out. And so one of the questions I have here is, how does defining a human being as inherently contingent or dependent on someone or something else, how does that challenge us today? And so that's fundamentally your definition of a person, mm -hmm. that we're contingent, that we're dependent. Mm -hmm. I mean, I imagine that the applications are many and varied, mm -hmm. uh, but maybe some of the things that come to mind in terms of how it challenges us today in our own thinking. Well, I think the mood of the culture, <clears throat> and this also goes back to the Enlightenment, because... Um, an Enlightenment thinker like Immanuel Kant thinks of the Enlightenment as throwing over unnecessary childish mm. dependence on mm. God mm. and growing into adulthood, which interestingly is very similar to what Genesis 3 identifies as the problem. Mm -hmm. But again, that's something we could pursue <laughs> some other time. Uh, and so you get this very strong emphasis in... Um, our post-Christendom cultures on the autonomy of the self um, and everything that comes from that. So to be strong, not to be weak, 
Um, you eventually get Friedrich Nietzsche, who abandons Jesus precisely because he's weak and chooses as his hero Zarathustra, mm -hmm. the strong, self-guided um, person. And if you look at a culture, the prevailing culture of Vancouver, it is very much marked by this bold, in-your-face, I am who I am, um, you know, we can, we can do it all. Um, you see something like climate change, for example, and, and you see these bold statements of we can overcome this problem. Mm -hmm. we, we, we who are wise and, and powerful can overcome. Well, I'm not saying we shouldn't tackle it, but there seems mm -hmm. to be an awful lot of hubris mm -hmm. in that. And so I think the culture is marked uh, by this kind of calculated, deliberate non-dependency on the creator. Mm -hmm. And inevitably, we're all creatures of groups. We get sucked into that as Christians. I do. Um, I, it's one of perhaps the things that, that is most natural to me, in fact, is autonomous reason and mm -hmm. so on. It comes with being an academic and stuff, I suppose. Mm -hmm. um, and I think we, we have to really just, again, remember. Remember the truth of the matter. Mm -hmm and adjust our posture and and get with the program, yeah. the Christian program once again. Yeah, I mean, it seems like one of the themes that runs throughout the book, not just in the fundamental section, is this living in this now but not yet tension, where <clears throat> we're not giving way to some sort of defeatism, where, you know, like, well, you know, we shouldn't have hubris, and so let's just sort of abandon the project altogether. Uh, but at the same time, um, you know, there is a humility that we are to, to sort of embody and, and to live into in, in view of our position as these dependent creatures. Um, maybe talk a bit about how eschatologically, or in view of how things end, um, you know, th this should inform right now what, what it means to be a human being, and that now but not yet tension that I think runs throughout your book. Yes, yeah, so I think this is the appropriate Christian balance. I don't think we should be pessimistic. It's not that I think we should say things like, we can achieve nothing in this world, it's right. all up to God. Right. That would be... I think, to bail out on our God-given task in the world, mm -hmm. which is indeed as much as possible to make things better than they are. On the other hand, we recognize that evil is a real thing, that it has deeply woven itself into the fabric of existence, and that in our own resources, we shall never defeat it. It's just not possible. Happily, mm -hmm. God has already defeated it, and so our optimism comes at the end of the day, not in our capacity to achieve total victory. We may win battles here mm. and there, but our confidence comes from the fact that the end of the story is already written. Mm. Uh, so we inhabit a story whose ending is already clear. Mm -hmm. And this is should be immensely encouraging. Mm -hmm. And not an excuse for doing nothing, but an engine for doing something. Mm -hmm. yeah, 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 very much so. I, I mean, you know, there's so much here. One of the things I love is, so as you read the book, there's these occasional like shots across the bow. So no one is safe in this book. That's just clear. No one is safe in this book. But perhaps the most unsafe are worship leaders uh, in, in this book. I just want to quote page 36. Uh, worship songs frequently appear not only to celebrate disembodiment, but to be sung in pursuit of disembodiment. And I bring up this quote, one, because I think it's awesome, and I think it's hilarious. Uh, but two, uh, one of the 
I don't want to say chief cuckoos, but one of the, what you call like this bridge, uh, the, you abandon the cuckoo metaphor at one point and you, and you adopt a bridge metaphor and you say, there's this one cuckoo in particular that kind of brings over a whole bunch of other cuckoos that, that makes way for all these other sort of dangerous ideas mm-hmm. or unhelpful ideas, perhaps more accurately. And, and that being uh, this platonic idea of, of, of the, the material world being bad and the spiritual world being good. And you say... Uh, that human beings are intrinsically physical creatures given life by God who breathe into each one the breath of life. They are, in a particular way, divinely animated matter. Mm-hmm. And that seems to be so, so, so important. Yeah. C- can you unpack j- just what you're saying there, Ian, and then the, the very important implications for us t- today? Sure. And I, I may stop halfway through and let you ask the question yeah. I lost track of there, because that's such a massive... Yes. Area. Let me say, first of all, yes, nobody's safe from this book, <laughs> including myself, right? Beautiful. So uh, this is the point, right? The point is uh, to, to attempt to articulate the truth of the matter mm-hmm. to which we are all accountable. So I bear no ill will towards no. worship leaders. And it's not uh, written in that way. I want to no, be very I, clear. It's thank written, you. Yeah. Just to be clear. On the other hand, I do think that what we do is the best indicator of what we really believe Mm -hmm. because we're all capable of deceiving ourselves at the level of words Mm -hmm. and so on. And when we observe, if that's the right word, when we observe what often happens in, in church services, it does seem rather worryingly to imply that the real purpose of the event that we're participating in is to help us escape temporarily our embodiment. Mm. Uh, And this is a preparation for the eventual escape from our embodiment in which our souls will fly off to heaven. And the point is that this idea of souls flying off to heaven is Plato. Mm. It's really not the Bible. And I know that that will surprise many people because we've grown up with this language, and I did too. Philadelphia cream cheese commercials. Right, oh, yeah? of disembodied souls. Do you know this one? No, I don't know oh, that one. I missed yeah, that for one. For the next book, okay, you can, you can pick right. it up. Yeah, these commercials where there's, you know, there are these disembodied okay. souls floating in heaven. Right. You, you, get, you get the image. Yeah. Well, I mean, of course, it's very, very important to object to this because mm. it makes a nonsense then of the notion of bodily resurrection. Mm. There's a reason why Paul's hearers in Athens made fun of him talking about bodily resurrection is because they were Greeks, mm. and the Greeks generally had no place for the body after mm. this particular existence. But Christian faith, Jewish faith actually, and Christian faith, gloriously um, say, no, uh, matter is not the prison for the soul. The soul is not the real you. The real you is a, is a living soul inbreathed by mm. God, given life by God, and matter matters mm. to God. Can I press pause there for a second? Yes, because you make a big diff- uh, a big deal in your book about the difference between uh, being a living soul versus having us having a soul or or possessing a a soul. And, and, and right, you know that might not seem immediately obvious in terms of implications to the reader, but but can you draw that out for us in terms of why that's so significant? Well, I mean, it's significant, first of all, because that's what Genesis 2 verse 7 says. It's mm. amazing that people don't notice mm. that it doesn't say God gave human beings a soul. Mm. It says that in the process of creation, these human beings became living souls, as you say. 
And the language that's used there, the language of soul, the Hebrew word nefesh, um, if you do a little, well, it would be a little word study, it would be a large <laughs> word study, but it's very clear that this word is often used simply to mean person. It's not a bit, it's a person viewed from a particular point of view. Um, so in other words, at the beginning and in the end, there can be no separation of soul and body because they're not separate things to begin with. They can't be separated. Now, of mm. course, because we're in a now and not yet scenario, there is in Scripture and in Christian theology, there's been a lot of wrestling with, well, yes, but what happens between now and then? And to be honest, I think we should regard that question as above our pay grade because the apostles themselves don't speak entirely clearly. They use metaphors like sleep and mm -hmm. being with the mm -hmm. Lord and so on. So clearly, there are certain things in the world in which we live uh, that are where, where there's a temporary, temporary absence, shall we say, of the body. But I think biblically, it's extraordinarily important to 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 see that matter is God created, and it is not an accident or a temporary measure. That then has tremendous complica uh, complications, yes, implications mm. for a whole bunch of other things, like do we honor the material world generally? Mm -hmm. The Apostle Paul's already wrestling with this question because he, he alludes on a number of occasions to people who are taking the opposite view, who are saying that uh, the body is somehow a problem, that you shouldn't eat certain foods, and so on. And he has quite a lot to say mm. about what we nowadays refer to as Gnosticism, which is a particularly evolved form of Platonism, where mm. matter is actually not just a problem, but resolutely evil. Mm -hmm. um, and the early church had enormous battles with Gnostics mm. because they knew, people like Irenaeus, that they had to reject this teaching fundamentally antithetical to biblical faith, I believe. How do you see this Gnosticism fueling or shaping uh, our conversations around gender uh, and sexuality today? Well, I think one of the reasons why the church is having difficulty with this identity question just now, one of the reasons, is precisely because so many of us have already made the move in our minds mm. that says that my real me is inside somewhere. That makes it much easier then to become doubtful about Christian faith mm. when people in the culture say, yeah, yeah, I agree with you. The real me is deep inside this body. In fact, the body doesn't have anything much to do with who I am. In fact, I may well feel that I want to change my body substantially because, because my real identity is is deep inside. Mm. Um, so I don't think we help ourselves here because we weaken our own resistance to this um, cultural move. Um, and it ought to be resisted for all sorts of reasons. Mm. Um, and not just Christians realize it ought to be resisted. A whole bunch of other people realize it ought to be resisted mm -hmm. as well. Mm -hmm. Before we get into the particularities of these various cuckoos, and I do want to do that, I think it's really fun and important. Uh, one of the sort of the fountainheads uh, is is romanticism in your book and the influence of romanticism. 
uh, again, like epistemology, romanticism is something that we might be vaguely familiar with. But can you maybe just explain what we're talking about when we're talking about romanticism yeah. and, and then maybe how it is intersecting with our own thinking today? Well, this is very important because if we're going to understand where we are now, we have to understand where we came from, which is a bit like what I said about remembering. Mm -hmm. So it's not just remembering the Bible, but remembering where our culture has come from. And fundamentally, that comes down to two realities. We've mentioned the Enlightenment with its emphasis on science and facts and reason and so on. Romanticism emerges as a counter-movement, an objection to that, or at least to the excesses of that. And the Romantics, capital R, so not just Romantics as in mm -hmm. rom-coms, capital R, uh, a series of writers, artists, and so on and so forth, um, who basically say, you're creating a prison for us with all of this emphasis on facts and reason and science, we want to find space once again for emotion, the mm. irrational, and, and all of that. Right. And you see this in poets like William Wordsworth, for example. Um, well, it's from this romantic objection to the Enlightenment that by degrees we have come down now to the question of the real self being deep inside and having very little to do with our biology mm -hmm. and so on. Right. Um, and we're much more influenced by romanticism generally than perhaps we even realize mm -hmm. in terms of how we, how we think about uh, these, these matters. And that divide, I think, between hard science on the one hand and romantic culture on the other is still a very evident dynamic of contemporary society. Mm -hmm. I think one of the, the interesting experiences of reading this book is, is that um, most of our, most of maybe what I'm reading or engaging with is so polemical and so tribal, if we can use that language, uh, that reading the book, uh, I found myself having whiplash often. And so, for example, uh, you talk about romanticism and its influence, its unhealthy influence, and yet you have so much of the book dedicated to beauty and, and, and to art. And so can you maybe speak, Ian, to like um, the, the sort of converse side of that, where, where beauty and art does have a place, but in its proper place. So what, what is, if it's not everything, uh, what is the something uh, that beauty and art does have in the place for a Christian? How should we think about it in view of what it means to be human today? Yeah, so I mean, uh, you're, you're identifying a, a major thrust of the book, which I think is quite important, and that is... Um, I don't think Christians ought to respond to the world in what I might call a nuclear manner. Mm -hmm. We have a tendency, like everybody else apparently in the culture, to want to make very strong statements on one side of things yeah. without asking the yes but question. And this really goes back, I think, to the notion that there is only one living God. So even what is twisted in the world comes from some good. Mm. It must have some good in it. Mm. Right, even the darkest stuff has some remnant of, of good because we don't have the capacity as human beings to destroy the goodness of things. That's the point about the story being scripted, right? Good will win. It's only a matter of time, timing. So on this business of um, think about the Enlightenment, the Enlightenment really is a Christian heresy. It could hardly be anything else. 
actually, coming out of a Christian culture. So is there anything wrong with inquiring into the world and doing science? No, Solomon was already doing that, so what's the problem? There's nothing wrong with that. But what happens is people take a good idea out of this context of the biblical story and they run with it and end up in bad places. Likewise, romanticism. Are we simply minds and bodies? Well, no, of course not. So they're right to object to over-rationalism and so on. Um, but, of course, they take it too far and it becomes the kind of really twisted culture we have now. So what is it that they are twisting in that specific thing? And the answer, I think, is that God has created the world beautiful um, and that we are called as one of the things we're supposed to do to create beautiful things in response to that beauty as well as looking after the beauty of the world. And all of that's really good. And to that extent, if the romantics are simply saying, if they were simply saying, we have to find a really important place for this because it's in the Bible, I would have no problem with that. And, and the Christian, the proper Christian response, I believe, is not simply to reject the Enlightenment or to reject Romanticism, but to say the things that you care about most deeply here find their proper place within this biblical narrative mm -hmm. over here. Yeah. And everything that's good about what you're saying is over here but you have to leave all the other stuff behind because it's not good. That, I think, is a much more effective way of addressing culture, frankly. Not simply denouncing. I mean, I'm not saying we shouldn't denounce. There's some very wicked things going on in the world that require denouncing. But I think that if we're trying to draw people that uh, doing what the Apostle Paul once again did in the book of Acts, which was to find a point of connection, the unknown God, for example, and, and, and to say, you have true insight here, but this is where it belongs, mm -hmm. over here. So that's a bigger idea in the book. Yeah. And I mean, I think it's something you're uniquely situated to talk about at length, because as an Old Testament scholar, this idea of idolatry and, and idols giving way to these elevated things, is that a connection that you see clearly in your mind where idolatry feeds, you know, like, you know, the Enlightenment's you know, adultery of, of, of reason and romanticism, adultery of feeling and beauty and those kinds of things. Is that a connection that you see? Yes. I mean, when Paul speaks about this in Romans, when he talks about the, the one of the early consequences of the fall is futility of thinking, mm -hmm. right? So what we have is that, that a situation that when you abandon God, you don't really become atheist. This is one of the great modern delusions. <clears throat> You become polytheists, is what mm -hmm. you become. Mm -hmm. You end up worshiping all sorts of created things to, to try to get out of them some kind of divinity that will meet your craving mm -hmm. for, for divinity, mm -hmm. because we're all created as image bearers. So we do have this craving. Um, and so idolatry lies right at the heart of the problem. There's nothing wrong with reason. Reason is a very important God-given gift, which allows us to, to discern between truth and falsehood if used well. Mm -hmm. uh, there's nothing wrong with beauty. Beauty is a wonderful thing. God made it. Uh, God makes the trees in the garden not only good for food, but pleasing to the eye. Now, why is that? People don't seem to sometimes understand the significance of that. Well, why, though? Mm -hmm. 
Mm. Well, because we're created for beauty. Is there is there a problem mm. with that? No. Can it become idolatrous? Absolutely it can. Look at Hollywood or just look around Vancouver or indeed look into your own heart mm -hmm. for that matter. Yeah, right? you have to go far. So the thing is, every good thing that God has created can be turned into idolatrous stuff. And the Apostle Paul, I think, spends, seems to spend a lot of time trying to get people to understand the nuance here, mm -hmm. right? Yeah, 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 you're right. You're right about the idolatry. However, it doesn't mean necessarily you can't eat food offered to idols. And right. it doesn't mean you should be contemptuous of food in general right. or of sex or whatever, right? He's, I think he's, mm. he's appealing to people to think Christianly about mm. these things and to relocate the things that have got lost back in the, the only narrative where they can make proper sense and do people, do us all good. Mm -hmm. and, and it seems to me like he, he's appealing to all these things in the context of the church, which is a really interesting part of your, 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 your book, Ian, is that so as an individual who's prone to, you know, pendulum swings and polarization, is that I need a, a group, this circle of trust, and it seems to me that the circle of trust par excellence, uh, like like is is the church. Can you talk a bit about the role that the church has to play, uh, indeed needs to play, uh, in in helping expose these cuckoos and teaching us that biblical framework? And what are, you you identify three sort of key sort of components or or parts of a church that really need to be emphasized and explored. Can you unpack that a little bit for us and the role of the church in all of this? Sure, I will, and then you can ask me more questions yeah, about yeah. it if, if I run out of steam. Um, so let's backtrack a little bit. Um, the modern prejudice, I think, and it's, it's a liberal prejudice in the proper sense of the word liberal, is to think of us all as individuals first and creatures of the group second. Hmm. And you see this in political thought, the notion of the social contract. We're all individuals. And then we make contractual connections, and that's how we form institutions and families and so on. And of course, there's something very problematic about that, and I alluded to it earlier on, that by the time we become conscious of ourselves and of thinking and stuff, we're already inducted into communities, hmm. and we're already shaped by communities. And we, uh, whether we like to think differently, we go on being shaped by communities at all points. Peer pressure is an enormous force uh, in the culture, and I think it's the main way in which the average non-Christian person decides on right and wrong is by looking at what the group is doing, um, as far as I can tell, uh, which is very dangerous, of course, in many ways as well, the uncritical buying into the group. But one way or the other, we're members of groups. The only question is which groups are we going to prioritize? And the church exists as the community of the first fruits of the kingdom that we are primarily um, to, I mean, apart from our family, because mm -hmm. both individuals and families are part of the church. For individuals who don't have a, a family, that's the absolutely primary location. And then for others, it's certainly a very important part of the community. Um, that they should be part of, because we need the support of other people in seeing reality clearly. We may not remember by ourselves. Somebody else can tell us to remember. We may not see the cuckoo, but somebody else does. Mm -hmm. 
we may have all sorts of weaknesses that paralyze us in our capacity even to read ourselves properly, and we need other people to speak truth into mm-hmm. our lives. And so the question of the good church becomes fundamental here. Um, that the church has to, if we want to ask ourselves the question, what does a good church look like, as opposed to, I suppose, a bad one or mm-hmm. a, a less functional Back to one. goodies and baddies, I like it. Yeah, back to goodies and baddies. Talking my language. Well, on the, on this yeah, yeah. issue, this is actually something I do think where there's at least better and worse. Mm-hmm. Maybe, maybe that's perhaps a better way of putting it. But I mean, such a church has to be a place where everyone is on the same page. I mean, not perfect, but heading in the same direction. Mm-hmm. So that we can all trust each other with ourselves and with our kids. Mm-hmm. So that we can process all of these things internally without being constantly tripped up by the culture. And then go out to live our lives in the culture at large from a position of, of strength and community. Mm-hmm. And we absolutely need that because by ourselves we are very much compromised, typically in our ability to live as disciples. Yeah. One of those emphases that you make is uh, a good church is in a, like embodied, is actually together, Yeah, actually actually gathers. Uh, and so what a, what a novel concept that is. Um, well, it's become novel, but everyone up until last Tuesday, as it were, <laughs> culturally speaking, <laughs> believed that that's what we should be doing. Yeah. It's only the kind of madness of, of our particular time mm. that has made it seem at all sensible that we ought to do it through computer screens mm-hmm. instead, for example. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, you know that I have the same view of teaching. It's the same, my same belief that embodiment lies at the heart of the gospel and disincarnation lies at the heart of the schemes of the devil. Mm. And we need to take that really, really seriously. And whatever the temporary virtue of connecting by, by Zoom might be, it is not, in fact, the same as breaking bread and mm-hmm. drinking wine and being there in the room when the sermon is being preached and touching and all of the other stuff that goes into the, the healthy community. Yeah. One of the things that surprised me in the book um, I was expecting, you know, some, some of the lies that you said, these are these lies threatening our church. I, I expected them and anticipated them. One of them I did not expect, and I'm just going to read from the book here, is you say, perhaps the greatest contemporary threat to this kind of functional Christian community derives from the seemingly innocuous emphases in some Christian circles on hospitality. I, and I was just surprised by, by reading that, hearing about hospitality as this sort of, this sort of Trojan horse for weakening the church. Can you expand on that? Because I think it's very insightful and very helpful. Yeah, no, I've been concerned about this for a while, and I've spoken a little bit about this before in different contexts. Again, this is one of these great examples where a good idea has been taken where it should not go. Hmm. So does the Bible speak a lot about hospitality? Absolutely it does. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, We should be, in a broad sense, welcoming to outsiders um, we shouldn't cut ourselves off from culture. Right. We should love even our enemies. All of these things are true. Mm-hmm. But does any of that have anything to do with the nature of the church as, an, as a necessarily bounded community with boundaries that are actually quite hard? Mm-hmm. 
And I'm saying in the Bible, no, these two things don't have anything to do with each other. In fact, quite the opposite is the case, that when the Apostle Paul, again, sees people who are threatening the well-being of the Christian community, he says you've got to put that person, mm. at least temporarily, outside because that person is going to do damage if mm. you simply leave him in, in situ. Um, so hospitality, and, and again, part of what happens here is that biblical ideas escape their biblical context, turn up in somebody else's philosophy, yeah. and then we use the word, and whether we know it or not, we smuggle back in um, other philosophers and so on. Yeah. So hospitality, of course, in the world of French literary critics and so on, becomes a reason for never making truth claims, mm -hmm. never standing up for anything. Mm -hmm. uh, it's always an act of violence mm -hmm. when you claim that something is true, and you must never, ever exclude or marginalize. These are the words of our mm -hmm. time. Yeah. And, of course, biblically, all of that is simply not the case. But the word hospitality, the concept of hospitality, is now routinely being used in many churches as a way of saying, we have to be pluralist, we have to be diverse, mm -hmm. we have to be inclusive. And that means that even people who hold radically different ideas about sexual identity, for example, mm -hmm. have to be included in the same community. And my response is, show me in the Bible where it says that. Mm -hmm. I, I mean, that to me as a pastor um, speaks just a lot of my experience right now in terms of the struggle and wrestle with people who on one hand want to be hospitable and see this clear picture in scripture, and on the other hand are feeling the tension of, of being other. Of believing something different, and so they're they're wanting to reach out, but being rebuffed unless un, unless you capitulate on these certain issues. I mean, how would you speak, even just pastorally, in the person right now who's living in that tension and and struggling? How would you encourage them? Not knowing the specifics of what they're going through, but how would you encourage them, maybe more generally, to be recommitted to this biblical concept of hospitality as the scriptures define it? Well, I would encourage them just to think through with with me, with us, mm -hmm. with the book, with Scripture, what it is that we're aiming for and why. Mm. So the purpose of the church having hard boundaries is not so that it can cut itself off from the culture. It's precisely so that it can be salt and light mm. to the culture. Mm. But if the church is not the church, it can do no good mm -hmm. of that kind, right? Mm -hmm. um, the church has to, first of all, be the church, and then it has to respond to the call as the church, mm -hmm. to be hospitable and to be salt and light mm -hmm. and to love enemies and all the rest of that. And I'm sure all of us have done lots of hospitality in our time. We certainly have. But we've never, to my memory, been confused about the difference between mm -hmm. the church and the culture. One is a bounded set of committed Christ disciples. And on the other side is people who do not to some yeah. degree or other, wish to be committed Christ disciples according to that same orthodox understanding. Mm. That's simply a reality, and to pretend the reality is otherwise is, is to run all sorts of risks about failing to remember and getting confused. And think about it at the level of our children. I think perhaps parents get this more quickly than people who don't, don't yet have children. Um, 
when I gather together with fellow Christians here at Christ City, I want to know that whichever adult my children mm -hmm. speak to is going to reaffirm Orthodox Christian faith and is going to behave in an orthodoxly Christian manner. Mm -hmm. uh, otherwise, I'm not in a circle of trust. Mm -hmm. I'm in a circle of at least quasi-doubt, mm -hmm. and that is not going to be good. Uh, I don't want my children exposed to plurality when it comes to views of sexual identity in church, yeah. because they're already getting enough of that everywhere else. I would like them to meet a lot of cool, obviously godly adults who all yeah. basically believe the same, and they're going to reinforce mm -hmm. uh, what I might be teaching as a parent yeah. to, to children. Yeah. I mean, I'm beyond parenting, but I, I'm now thinking very hard about grandchildren. Mm -hmm. It's the same. It's the same deal. Mm -hmm. And related to that is this idea of compassion, and you do a good bit on challenging how we understand compassion in the book. But I'll leave that for now because I, would, I do want to come to parenting and, and child raising because that is. Again, it comes up throughout, and, and really the meta theme in the book, at least, is of is the pedagogy, is of how we teach and, and how we instruct those. And you've already mentioned it so far as it pertains to remembering and remembering the story that we're a part of. If you could speak to the parents, so there's various people I've been bringing up thus far, uh, and so I apologize for putting you on the spot pastorally, but if you could speak to the parent who, who sees and feels this influx of, of ideology and a particular agenda and feels overwhelmed by it, um, we've mentioned the role of the church and having people speak into that and reaffirm historic Orthodox Christian faith. Um, maybe just talk a bit about the, the parent whose whose child is in a school where they're pushing a particular agenda. Um, what does it look like for them uh, to walk faithfully in, in this time? How would you encourage them um, in this season? Yes, I mean, that's a very large question with a number of different layers. And take it wherever you want to go. And in a way, the answer would be, it all depends. Yeah. Because again, I, I think it's a mistake, probably, just to lay down the law in these matters. Uh, some children can manage a lot of tension in their lives quite well. Mm -hmm. um, some children... Uh, understand very clearly because they've been well taught by their parents and by their church what's going on around them mm -hmm. and they can navigate a fair degree even of hostility by peers without being compromised yeah. or overturned uh, some cannot some parents are perfectly capable of going up to the school and talking to teachers about their concerns and many are not mm -hmm. so this is what makes it difficult, I think, in, in offering advice. But the fundamental thing beneath all of that is, it is our parental responsibility and nobody else's responsibility to raise our children. Mm -hmm. uh, in fact, the Universal Declaration of Human Rights tells us so, uh, interestingly enough, a very biblical document, by the way, in my view. It'd be good if people paid more attention to it in, in our present time. Um, so parents are the ones that have the fundamental responsibility to raise their kids. And it used to be understood very clearly on all sides that schools were there to support the parents in that task mm -hmm. by offering a number of specialist areas of education that were beyond the grasp of most individual parents, you know, mathematics, physics, yeah. and so on. Certainly so beyond on. the grasp of this parent. Yeah, well, yeah. And, and indeed, don't give me a math problem. I'm not your man, right? So... Um, and even 20 years ago, 25 years ago in Vancouver, 
our four kids went through public school, mm -hmm. and we do not remember having any great difficulty with that because these were not yet ideological times in the schools. Mm. By and large, the education was still kind of lowest common denominator. We just teach history. We just teach geography. And social studies was beginning to get okay. the edge of it was yeah. there. Well, I mean, things have, have vastly changed now, of course. And so I think in answering your question, Jake, I think you have to know your child well and to make an assessment as to how well they're doing. Um, so if you already have children in a school system which is heavily ideological or a particular school mm. that's heavily ideological, I do think you have to ask very serious questions about that mm -hmm. because you want them to continue to prosper as young disciples of Christ. Um, and if you find that, in fact, your attempts to deprogram them at the end of the day are just completely falling flat, mm because they're now utterly immersed in the peer group. That's a problem. Mm -hmm. If you're thinking about whether to put your kids into this or that school, again, sometimes parents have very limited choices because they have limited financial means, mm -hmm. for example. Yeah. Um, and so I, I think some careful thought about the merits or necessity of homeschooling, Christian schooling, public schooling, because things do vary from place to place mm -hmm. and school to school. Mm -hmm. So I think more than, more than specific advice, I think people have to step back and try and get a hold of the big picture. Yeah. What are we aiming for as parents? Uh, what are the resources that can help us get there? And what are the threats to getting there? And how large are they? Mm -hmm. Can they be overcome mm -hmm. or can they not? Everything should be judged, I think, by the answers to those bigger questions. Mm -hmm. I mean, the, the theme of education comes up so often in the book that I was wondering if the last chapter would be, and this is why I'm starting the Cuckoos at, you know, Educational Institute, which is you know, a primary to university sort of school. Is that happening, Ian? Is there, is there a school in the works is, that you're founding? No, no, no I don't see that in my future. Um, I already have a fairly hefty uh, number of speaking engagements in the fall yeah. just on this question of helping churches and denominations and missionary organizations and fill in the blank yeah. to process the questions we are talking about yeah. because um, it's a massive question, but the truth of the matter is that there's relatively few people um, who appear to be offering help. Mm -hmm. And some of that is because they don't know how to help. And so my job, I think, is to help those who then help others mm -hmm. by talking to and helping denominational leaders, pastors, parents, whoever really needs my help to process all mm -hmm. of this stuff. Um, I don't see myself starting an entirely new educational <laughs> institution, but I, I will say this, I wonder if we are coming to a point in this culture broadly speaking, mm -hmm. not just Vancouver, but this kind of culture. I wonder if we're coming to a point where we have to consider setting up cooperative school mm -hmm. systems in the church once mm -hmm. again. And I, I, I say cooperative for two reasons. First of all, not income dependent, but accessible to every Christian. And cooperative in the sense that in order to make it affordable, it would require everyone who has gifts and abilities to pile in 
and participate for the good of the whole. Mm -hmm. um, I think that's a better way of thinking about homeschooling than just the individual family, mm -hmm. because each of us as individual parents have our own limitations mm -hmm. of all kinds. And once again, as, as in the church, it's better to be part of a group where you're getting feedback. Mm -hmm. It's also better, I think, in this educational realm. Mm -hmm. So I can see that that might become necessity. It all depends, I think, how much worse things get in the public school system mm -hmm. because people should be under no illusion that the whole SOGI thing is designed to disable parents from bringing their children up as they see fit. Yeah. It is explicitly designed. In fact, if you go on the website, you'll see that the people who wrote that stuff explicitly say a parent's job is essentially to sit back and facilitate and to allow the child to find out who they really are, mm -hmm. which is code for parents go away and allow us to mm -hmm. influence your kids and bring them up. Mm -hmm. Because one way or another, someday we'll be bringing your kids up. Mm -hmm. The only question is, will mm -hmm. it be you? Or will it be somebody else? Yeah. I feel very robust on that point because yeah. I think it's dishonest and I think it's dangerous mm -hmm. to pretend that Soji is anything else than that. Yeah. It's yeah. a deliberate attempt uh, and it has, well, the whole Marxist enterprise generally has always been about disabling and destroying intermediate institutions so the state mm -hmm. can have its way with, with individuals, mm -hmm. right? So you destroy intermediate communities on the way to the state indoctrinating your children. Well, that's essentially what's going on in this in this world that mm. we're living in. I mean, so I am I am entirely sympathetic to that viewpoint, and, and I would say largely agree. But I can also hear someone listening right now saying in their mind, maybe even out loud, this this sounds like fear mongering to me. It sounds escapist talking about church cooperative schools. It sounds insular. I mean, I had a conversation the other week about a parent we send our kids to Christian school and, and asking me, like, are you afraid that they'll grow up in a particular bubble and not be exposed to the wider world? How would you respond to those sorts of comments? Well, I mean, it would depend, I suppose, again, on the person and the circumstances. Um, as I say, our kids went through public school. Mm -hmm. I believe in public school. Mm. Um, I fundamentally believe in Christians being salt and light, even young Christians. However, they are young people. Mm -hmm. They're not adults yet. Mm -hmm. And even adults in churches in this culture are finding it tough to remember and to hold the line. So how much more children? Um, should we be afraid of our children being led astray? Well, it depends. I mean, some children not. Other children, yes. Not all children, even in the same family, are, right. have the same capacity mm -hmm. to resist peer pressure. That's just evident. Um, so should we be overly mm -hmm. fearful? No. Um, certainly not about ultimate outcomes. The stand of the story is written. Mm -hmm. Should we be appropriately fearful and watchful and cautious mm -hmm. and being right on top of it mm -hmm. and up at the school mm -hmm. explaining to the teachers that what you won't accept and being on the school board? And yeah, we should be doing all of that if mm -hmm. we're going to engage. With that, am I afraid of children growing from bubbles? Yes, but the question is, am I more afraid of that than children being completely corrupted mm. by a horrendous culture mm. and taken off uh, and sexualized mm. and rendered vulnerable to sexual predation and so on? Mm. 
if people think those are not realistic outcomes, I don't think they're paying attention. Mm. So overly fearful, well, I'll leave it to people to decide what overly means <laughs> in this context. But people need to look the thing straight in the eye, mm -hmm. see it for what it is. Mm -hmm. And of course, there are different kinds of Christian schooling anyway. Some of it is insular and bubble related mm -hmm. and anti-science and stuff, of course. Mm -hmm. I don't approve of that. Need it be? No, mm -hmm. it needn't. It, there's no necessity that it should be. Mm -hmm. Some Christian schooling isn't very Christian. It's mm -hmm. just... The constituency is Christians, but the schooling is pretty much like everything else. Mm -hmm. So, again, there's all sorts of factors you'd need to weigh in to the answer to this question. Mm -hmm. Well, I think that's the helpfulness of the book, because, I mean, even in the book, you, you don't give a blanket statement, here's the schooling that you should do, and here's the path or trajectory that you should take. Because one of the cuckoos that you do come to is moralistic therapeutic deism, mm -hmm. and we all know Christian schools where, where that's the predominant worldview or the predominant religion anyways, and so there's no safety in, in, in that particularly. No, indeed not. I mean, uh, the fact of the matter is that it's perfectly possible for children to graduate from some Christian mm -hmm. schools looking pretty much like any graduate from any school with no particularly well-developed sense of mm -hmm. Christian faith or the ability to read culture and so on. And so you don't solve any problem just by chucking the adjective Christian in front of something, Yeah, which appears to be <laughs> part of the assumption. I mean... I, in fact, in some cases, it's positively unhelpful. I mean, I, I don't really care whether my pilot is a Christian pilot. All I care about is can he fly the plane, right. you know? And I feel the same about Christian dentists. I, I, don't, even know, I don't even know what they are, really. So, um, yes, we shouldn't be silly about it, yeah. of course. Um, we need to be thoughtful about it. But the book is trying to, to, to help people to step back and see the big mm -hmm. picture. Uh, what they do next, I, I do say a number of things about possibilities about what they might do next. Mm -hmm. And in terms of you know, right thinking and right behavior generally, of course, I say some very definitive things about mm -hmm. what they should do next. But mm -hmm. in many of these other areas of life, what you do next depends on the circumstances of the exile in which you find yourself. Mm develop a different biblical metaphor for, for our existence. Yeah. I, I want to move from school and the question of parenting to the question of work. And, and you talk about um, Christians need not prioritize today the caring professions over careers in business, and how there has, among some Christians, uh, been developing this negative attitude towards um, is a wealth accumulation or, or just making money. Uh, can, can you talk about how you're seeing that and, and, and the concern that you have uh, like around that? Well, I think this comes under the heading once again of the difference between a good thing in itself and an idolatrous version yeah. of the thing. Yeah. Um, the love of money is the root of all evil, I seem to remember. But it's the love of money. It's not right. the money, right? And I think that it's very clear from Scripture that um, working hard is a good thing. Mm -hmm. And uh, enjoying the fruit of your labor is a perfectly reasonable thing. Mm -hmm. But you should also look after other people who are not as fortunate as you are, and you should be generous. And at the end of the day, your wealth is not your own, but belongs to God. Right? So these are some of the biblical fundamentals for thinking about wealth. Is wealth problematic in itself? No, it's not. Mm -hmm. In fact, it's a blessing very often. Mm -hmm. It can be the sign of corrupt, wicked hearts. Mm -hmm. 
in the Bible, but it can also be the outcome of faithful service, good work. Um, there's no reason to think, therefore, that this is somehow lower down the hierarchy of the kind of way you should practice your Christian vocation. I don't see any justification for, for that. But in the medieval world in particular, where there was a hierarchy much bigger than that about you know, which things were top and which were lower, um, it, it became, this kind of thing became part of that issue. It's very significant, therefore, that people like Martin Luther were very robust on this issue about all Christian work is good work. Mm -hmm. uh, there, there is ungodly work, but it's not ungodly because it's you know, wealth creation rather than nursing. Mm -hmm. It's ungodly because it's wicked and immoral work, perhaps. Mm -hmm. So do we, do we attribute, um, and maybe this is you know, particularly true of millennials, I'm not sure, but do you attribute this preference to uh, of poverty over you know prosperity or or money? Like to, you write in a book a, a bit about like Marxist influences and, and where that might come from. You say on page one thirty, it's this great quote: "Striving to maintain oneself and one's family economically so as not to be a burden to others is simply one aspect of our Christian discipleship." Yeah. I, and I was just thinking to myself, like I, that seems to me at least to be a very like countercultural. There seems to be just a clear preference for just you know like. Just getting rid of everything, you know, fearful of the idolatry. My mom's going to get rid of it altogether. Um, and again, we're asking the why question here, Ian. So, like, you know, the why question is a bit hard to ascertain at times. But, but, but where does this where does this come from? Well, I think your hunch is right when you mention Marxism. And, mm. and once again, let's think about think about all of these. And this is a pretty good thing to do, actually. Um, analyze all of these cultural currents in terms of them being Christian heresies, mm. right? So we've talked about the Enlightenment and Romanticism as having important things to say, but being Christian heresies. Yeah. Marxism is exactly the same. Mm. Marxism is inconceivable as a philosophy without prior Christian culture. It's a development of, a heretical development of Christian thinking, uh, which has some laudable concerns at the heart of it, justice, fairness, uh, people enjoying the fruits of their labor, mm -hmm. but casts it all in a, a resolutely um, this-worldly kind of reality in which the eschatology, the end story, is not the end story of mm -hmm. Christian faith, very much not mm -hmm. the end story of Christian faith. So again, what has happened here is what has happened in these other cases, happen with hospitality. You take the Christian idea and somebody develops it. They wouldn't have been able to do it if it hadn't been there, but mm -hmm. they, it was there already. So mm -hmm. they develop it in a very different way. And then because somebody reads, reads Derrida at university and stops mm -hmm. reading the Bible, they bring it back in, mm -hmm. in Derrida's form, French literary critic, mm -hmm. because some people don't know, not in the biblical form. Uh, likewise with this issue of wealth, I, it seems to me. I don't think you could possibly get to the idea that wealth creation is problematic by reading the Bible, but you might well get to it if you come at it through the lens of Marx. And who doesn't, who's ever been to high school or university in Canada, for example? Because we have allowed 
um, our young children for decades, maybe even longer than decades, to be indoctrinated by leftist professors in all kinds of disciplines, mainly leftists. If it was rightist, I would say so. Mm -hmm. I, I'm not a favor. You are very. I'm not in favor of left or right yeah. in that yeah. sense. But it happens in this case to mainly yeah. be leftists. So is it any wonder that people think that um, it's better to give away all your possessions mm -hmm. and be a burden on other people, specifically the state? Um, well, can you imagine, I mean, it's not difficult to imagine what the Apostle Paul would have said about that, because he says a lot about that kind of sentiment in the New Testament already. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, so did the early church, you know? Mm -hmm. If somebody shows up, uh, says one of those early texts, somebody shows up, make sure you give them a job to do. Don't, mm -hmm. don't allow them to use the gospel yeah. as an excuse for freeloading. Yeah. Okay, well, when was the last time you heard that? chat in church to yeah. be honest that theme appears to have got mm. lost somewhere why is that and i think it's because so much of the cast of our mindset at the moment is leftist in in ethos if mm. i can put it that way and some of us in just the way that right-wing ideology has been wedded too easily to christian faith mm. in a place like the usa for mm -hmm. example so largely in Canada, the problem is the opposite one. Mm. Many of us find it very difficult to disentangle socialist principles from biblical principles. Mm. And we do need to be able to disentangle them if we want to be biblical people. Mm -hmm. So we're moving on to this, to this section entitled Foreign Bodies. And you begin here to, to unpack some particular cuckoos, you know, some species, if you will. I don't know if that doesn't hold up in the metaphor, but I tried. Um, and, and one of the things that you note in terms of identifying a dynamic within these particular lies is that they're often swapped out for each other as is convenient for the, for the person who holds them. Mm. So, so one of those cuckoos being the, the follow the science cuckoo, where, where you just say, well, just, we'll just follow the science, right? They're making that is to ought mm -hmm. sort of movement. And so you mm -hmm. talk about that in the church and you have, of course, you know, the romantic side of that, which is to look inside yourself cuckoo, right? Which mm -hmm. is just like, who are, who are you truly inside mm -hmm. of yourself? And then you also have uh, this this freedom to choose cuckoo, and again, like you like you say in the book, people move between those all the time. Can you talk a bit about how that actually works itself out? Like an example yeah. of that, you know, in our world, in our life. Well, you know, postmodern culture is has often been called a kind of pastiche culture, okay. in the sense it's a bit of this, a bit of that, a bit of everything else, okay. and you chuck it all together and you come up with your unique individualistic statement mm -hmm. of, of who you are mm -hmm. and what you mm -hmm. believe. Yeah. And in yes. this case, you see that very clearly because the Enlightenment people were only Enlightenment people, if I can put it that way. There was no pastiche about it. Mm -hmm. Science was the way the world was going to become a better place, and it was going to become a better place pretty quickly through science and technology and just sticking to that. Mm -hmm. The Romantics tended to be very, very romantic, not something else. And then the follow, the, the follow, the will, the choice idea. Um, again, people who used to believe that, I think, believed it fairly rigorously and dogmatically. Mm -hmm. What we have now is a culture in which people sit more loosely to these ideas. They inevitably deploy them because they have to have some basis by which they can justify mm -hmm. their actions. 
But there's no consistency about it, either at the individual level or at the level of government policy, which I spend some time on in the book. Mm -hmm. Just a, a little interesting thought experiment. Can you guess what the Canadian government believes about stuff from watching their actions over the last couple of years? And the answer is that the Canadian government doesn't believe anything very clearly. It simply uses what lies to hand to achieve the goals that need to be achieved at any given moment. But actually, I think that's how many individuals behave as mm -hmm, well. Mm -hmm, so yeah. when it's convenient, uh, it's follow the science. So the whole COVID thing, that was a convenient way to, to do what you wanted to do. And I'm not disputing the motivations of many of those people, mm -hmm. how well-meaning they were. I'm just mm -hmm. pointing out that when they said follow the science, actually there was a lot more going on than mm -hmm. just that. Mm -hmm. And people weren't being honest about that. So there was that. But when it comes to um, the issue of transgenderism, for example, mm -hmm. we're absolutely not going to follow the science because the science very clearly doesn't speak in favor of, of that whole ideology. Instead, we will go with the gut feeling of the activists in this case. Mm -hmm. And then when all else fails, uh, well, it, it's, it's his right to choose. Mm -hmm. right? So if every other argument fails, just, just refer to choice and dare people to say, no, it's not. And you realize when you put it that way how unlikely it is that you would ever respond to that choice argument by saying, I don't care. Mm -hmm. it, that's how deeply embedded it is. Mm -hmm. At the end of the day, it's his choice. Mm -hmm. um, so there is no coherence to it. And the reason I point this out in the book is because I think that Christian people get intimidated very easily by the force with which people appeal mm. to these things. Mm. And it makes appealing to the Bible or to the Christian story somehow seem weak. Yeah. Because we've all been taught that faith is not as robust as intellect or science. Whether we, we, I hope we reject that, but there's almost a residual doubt in our mm. minds somewhere. And I want people to understand that these appeals to these cuckoos are way weaker mm -hmm. than the appeal <laughs> to Scripture, which is, of course, an appeal to Christ. Mm -hmm. So there's no reason to be intimidated by, by these cuckoos. And those three are really epistemological cuckoos. They're mm -hmm. all cuckoos that have to do with how we know stuff. Yeah. So. One of the cuckoos that's brought up that actually surprised me, and there are a number, we won't talk about them all, um, is the Philistine cuckoo. And so um, you say Philistinism or Philistinism. Am I saying that right, Ian? I would say Philistinism, but I'm from Britain, so I don't yeah. know. Well, I'll take, I'll take your word. Yeah, I mean, you guys invented the language. Yeah. Philistinism is a resolutely negative posture toward the arts, by materialistic persons, disdainful of intellectual or artistic value. So I grew up in a family that wasn't particularly artistic, save, save a sister who went to drama school. Uh, but we, we mocked her ruthlessly mm. for, for it because in our, in our family, there were things that, you know, that were important and, and the arts were not in that hierarchy of values. Right. Uh, and I was so deeply convicted by, first of all, by this. But I was just thinking through this. To, to me, you know, the platonic cuckoo, I can see the nefariousness of that. You know, um, you talk about like the, the Nietzschean cuckoo, um, you know, I, I can see like the nefariousness of that. And we, we will talk about that or we don't have to. But, but to me, this seems like a whole less 
you know, dangerous. Can you maybe help me? This is just, you know, the podcast society. This is personal counseling now. You're in the chair of counselor. Help me understand what's so dangerous about this disdainfulness of, of, um, of artistic values yes. or, or, or even just being bookish. Because it narrows our humanness. That's why. Hmm. So if the whole purpose here, you remember the old thing about man's chief end, et cetera, yeah. et cetera, to glorify God and yeah. enjoy him forever. If our whole business as image bearers is in response to our creator, mm -hmm. um, to, to display the entire gamut of God's glory in our lives, mm -hmm. right? Certainly reason and facts and, and stuff like that are important, mm -hmm. but beauty is no less important. And the pursuit of the glory of God through art and drama and stuff is no less important. Mm -hmm. So what happens with all of these things when they become ideologies is they narrow, mm -hmm. they exclude. You lose, exclude in a bad way. Mm -hmm. um, you, you make no space for these things. And we all become impoverished and maybe even imprisoned, in mm. fact. So you remember in the book, I quote Charles Dickens' novel, Hard Times, mm. which I was forced to read at high school. Hated it because I didn't understand it. I went back to it as an adult and I realized this, that novel is all about this point. Because mm. Mr. Gradgrind is North of England, industrial guy, who's utterly bought in to science and technology as the only stuff that matters and is appalled to learn his children have snuck into a circus rehearsal and says to his wife, I would have soon, uh, I would have been surprised um, otherwise to hear that they've been reading poetry, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. He, completely disdainful. Now, what does that do? Well, it doesn't end well for the family in that book, right? Because... We cannot live by bread alone, to paraphrase another scripture, mm -hmm. right? Um, we are created for beauty, and if we, if we suppress or mock or whatever, and we've, we've all done these things, mm -hmm. nobody's who's sinless here. Good, that makes me feel better. Yeah, no, yeah. you're only one of I, many I sinners, Jake. It's fine. I, I too am a sinner, <laughs> and I didn't always believe what I believe now. Yeah. You know? um, but honestly, I think it is important. Now, are all of these mistakes equally weighty? No. I, yeah. I don't. I, I've always had a problem with people who say, well, it's all sin. You mm -hmm. know, all sins are equal. Well, no, they're not. Mm -hmm. They're all sins. Mm -hmm. But murder's not. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Being angry is not the same as murder, mm -hmm. right? It's just that you shouldn't let yourself off the hook mm -hmm. is, is the point, right? Yeah. So, no. Are all of these cuckoos in all circumstances equally dangerous? No. But do some people get utterly crushed in this prison of rationality, mm -hmm. having no time in their lives for art and music and, mm -hmm. and all of that, I think they do. Mm -hmm. I think that's an impoverished life, mm -hmm. and um, we, shouldn't, we shouldn't baptize it with Christian mm -hmm. words. Yeah, yeah. So. As a closeted humanities major, this has been a very liberating conversation for me. Right. I appreciate it, Ian. I want to I want to end by by looking at two things, um, and I was going to say very quickly, but I, I want to give you as much time as you need. Um, you obviously write as somebody who has a background in educating educators and educating pastors, uh, those who will serve the church. Um, one of the things that you talk about, you know, is is the the purpose of 
of study and the beauty of study. You know, you you quip at one point, and I, and I laughed out loud. It was it was awesome. God forbid that these students should ever linger too long in their studies and learn something that they did not already know. Do you remember the section that's do, a part yeah. of? Can you, can you talk about a bit what you were getting at in, in that section? Yes. Well, this 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 touches now on my entire experience in education and what is now happening in the world of education mm -hmm. right at the time. Um, so the, the traditional and indeed Christian view of education was that you gathered persons together mm -hmm. with a, an older, wiser person, mm -hmm. and that these people together in their embodiedness learned from each other mm -hmm. Well, first and foremost, from the wiser person, the mm -hmm. tutor, the philosopher. Um, and that there was a lot more to all of that than simply intellectual endeavor. There was living together, practicing disciplines together, the whole business. And this has survived for a long time, even beyond the Enlightenment and the, and the, the end of Christendom. The, the ideal, particularly of the Humanities Liberal Arts College, mm -hmm. um, was never in the end of the day simply to teach people stuff. The goal was to teach people and to help to form them as persons. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. you can go back to the Reformation in the city of Erfurt where Martin Luther went to university as an undergraduate. Um, there's a very famous quote that may or may not be in this book. It's certainly one of the other ones where the guy says, the whole purpose of learning Latin mm. is mm. to become a better person. That's how they viewed it. No matter what you were doing, those things were good in themselves, language learning. But the real point of the whole exercise was to form persons. In the more secularized version, that was citizens. In the, in the more Christian view, disciples but similar sentiments because one came out of the other. Mm -hmm. right? um, that takes time together. It takes significant amount of time to induct people into a new community and to shape them and form them. Um, it takes money because to do that is expensive. Somebody, for somebody, mm -hmm. it's expensive. Uh, so time and money for sure. Probably there are other things, but let's just stick with those. Now, in this present moment, people who want to save time and save money have decided that, or are claiming that you can do this whole education thing just as effectively by completely other means than gathering people together for long periods of time and having them live together and so on. And in fact, it's much more accessible and all the rest of it because you're allowing people with less means to come and enjoy it and it's much more democratic and perhaps mm -hmm. even more Christian mm -hmm. to do it that way. And I fundamentally reject that. I think that is nonsense. Um, and that the kind of stuff that's happening now with um, uh, distance education and stuff is not the same kind of thing at all, mm -hmm. will not achieve the same ends. Mm -hmm will not, in the language in the world of seminaries, will not produce the same kind of pastors. Mm -hmm. Because my experience, even of the last few years of teaching, was that under the Zoom hybrid regime, mm -hmm. what happens is that individual people, dislocated from each other geographically, with no community 
of any real kind themselves, tend to relate to the educational experience one by one by one as spokes on a wheel to the hub. Mm -hmm. yeah. And although you can learn stuff that way, you cannot, in fact, learn a whole bunch of other things that are really important to formation. It's like we said with church, for formation really to happen, you need embodied persons to gather together mm -hmm. and do everything that gathered people mm -hmm. do. So mm -hmm. um, you can see, I hope, there's a coherence there, a consistency across the whole gamut mm -hmm. of, of what we're talking about. Yeah. Yeah. Matter matters. Um, God created us this way and not some other way. Yep. And to, 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 to fly in the face of that, particularly as Christians, is very problematic, it seems to me. But it's one of these many areas where the contemporary church has not done well in recognizing the cultural cuckoo emphases, analyzing them, and then choosing to do differently. Mm -hmm because that requires effort. I, there's, a, there's a joke in the book, which I think is a very profound joke. It says, somebody once said, only a moment's critical thought would have revealed this to him, but a moment is a long time and thinking is painful. Yeah. That's a great joke, but it's really, in a way, not funny, because yeah. it, so des it so describes yeah. this. So this giving in, to the let's do it quicker, let's do it more efficiently, let's get people in and out of there mm -hmm. like a sausage factory, mm -hmm. let's not worry too much about fundamentally impacting their worldview, let's just you know get them in, teach them a few things and send them back out. And somehow the world, well, not, leave, leave the world aside, somehow the church will be better. Mm. As if what we needed more of at the moment was bureaucratic manager pastors <laughs> rather than prophetic oh. leaders. Mm. Well, I, I, again, I simply beg to differ. Yeah. So um, this, as I look around the landscape of um, theological education, specifically in North America, I am alarmed and appalled in different measure, depending on how deeply this ideology has taken a grip. Yeah. Not bureaucratic manager leaders, but prophetic pastors. That's a, that's a good line, wasn't it? I just mm -hmm. made that one up. Mm -hmm. I'll, I'll leave that one with you. Put it on the epitaph. Yeah. Um, well, it might well be my epitaph, actually, <laughs> depending. Um, depending, yeah. It's, it's funny. I mean, the irony of this is the only time I've had related to you as an instructor, Ian, has been over Zoom. Yes, and, and I, I so know. I was thinking about that as you were speaking yeah. of, of the great irony of this. Well, did I not say to you at the beginning that this book is not about criticizing the outside yeah. world? This is yeah. a book that genuinely is trying to articulate the truth of the matter mm. coherently across the whole of life. Each of us surely must feel challenged, convicted, mm. accountable, not because I'm writing it, but because if what I'm saying is actually true, mm -hmm. we ought to attend to it. And always, even as an author, I return to my own books with a sense of being a stranger. I can't even remember where my headspace was when I wrote this or that. And sometimes I come back and I say, you know what, that's quite good. I like that. <laughs> but I'm hearing Who it. Said that? I know, exactly. I'm, but I'm hearing it now yeah. simply as a reader of a book. Mm. The fact is, my book is actually irrelevant. 
really. It's the truthfulness of it mm. or not that, that's the enduring thing. Yeah. Right. And there are things one writes that one wishes later one had not written inevitably. So it's not all like this. But it, this is not about, it's certainly not about sitting in judgment on persons, institutions, or even government. Mm -hmm. It's about trying to articulate what a Christian view of the human person looks like and what the implications are of that across the entire spectrum mm -hmm. of experience. Yeah. And hopefully then, drawing people back from decisions they might even be in the process of making about all of these things, mm -hmm. including I'm, education, but then including parenting, yeah. including all the other things we've spoken about. Yeah. I think that's a great segue to how I want to conclude. Uh, no one is safe in this book, including yourself, yeah. Ian. We, we've said it a few times now. What cuckoos, just personally, have you had to eject from your own proverbial nest throughout this process? You alluded to one earlier with sort of the you know individualistic, autonomous reasoning. Yeah. Um, what has this been just you know, fleshed out in your own life as you've considered these things? Yes, I don't think I... Um... I don't think I ejected any cuckoos as a result of the process of writing the book. Um, although I did learn more about some of them because I had to do more reading than I had done before on parts that I hadn't written a lot on. But in the course of my life, I certainly have uh, given in to the calls probably of all of these cuckoos mm -hmm. at some point. Um, it could hardly be otherwise because you're brought up in a culture, in a family, in a tribe, in a church, in a country. And you, that's, your, that's the deck of cards you have when you begin the game. And you were dealt this deck before you had any choice in the matter. You, they're just there. So I, um, I grew up with, a, I was taught to have a very high regard for science, which I think we should. Mm -hmm. um, but I do think that at certain points in my life early on, I overemphasized reason, although that had a lot to do with the fact that my young life was emotionally chaotic and I needed something solid to hold on to. So perhaps having looked into the emotional abyss, I'm much more insistent on the goodness of science and of objectivity. And similarly, it's why I'm deeply unsympathetic to the look inside yourself thing. So no matter, what I say about that intellectually at a visceral level, mm -hmm. I think it's madness mm -hmm. because I've done it mm -hmm. and there's no, there's nowhere to go in there. Um, and then other ones, I didn't even know where a lot of stuff came from until I became aware of Nietzsche, for example, and then it all just clicked into place. Um, and pro if we went through all of them, which we won't, it's no time at the moment, I think it's probably true that I have a, a clearer view now of them all than I did before, and that my own mistakes have contributed to the clarity, I hope, mm. I have now in describing them. Yeah. Because I feel that I see clearly where they lead if you give in. And if I can help other people not to go through the pain of discovering that for themselves, then that will have been a worthwhile endeavor mm. ian it has been so good to talk with you again lord willing the book comes out in june it's called cuckoos in our nest truth and lies about being human as ian said there were many podcasts we could have had here uh 
today. Uh, and maybe we'll have to have a few more. Thanks for being with us, Ian. Thanks very much. It was great. Enjoyed it. Thanks for listening to this episode of our Here Be Dragons podcast. If you'd like to listen to other episodes, you can find them on Spotify or iTunes. You can also find sermons from various Christ City neighborhood churches on our website and iTunes as well. See you next time.